I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you Harry Stee, Harry Dick John, Harry three, one, two, three, Ned's Richard two, Henry's four, five, six, then who? Edward's four, five, Dick the Bad, Harry's twain. Yes, we've come to the start of a new dynasty with Henry Tudor. But what can I say about Henry that hasn't already been said before? Oh, no, sorry, that's my introduction for Henry the Eighth. This is Henry the Seventh, a comparatively unmemorable king. One of those monarchs that people sort of know vaguely existed. Well, he must have existed because Henry VIII must have had a father, but they don't know that much about him. He's often dismissed as uninteresting, but I found looking into his life that actually he was a fascinating guy and had a very interesting reign. And without him, no Henry VIII, no Bloody Mary, no Queen Elizabeth I, no Lady Jane Grey, the nine-day queen. I mean, what on earth would they teach children in history lessons at school? But I think Henry VII should be better known. His coming to the throne caused a massive shift in the direction of English history. Uh, after all, it was Henry VII who defeated Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth Field and finally brought the Wars of the Roses to an end after nearly 35 years. It was Henry who restored order to the country and founded the Tudor dynasty. It was Henry who properly ushered in the Renaissance into Britain. And there really does seem to be a shift from this sort of medieval period if you think about it, you think of castles and knights in armour. And we're sort of moving into the Tudor period, which, well, I I think we all have a sort of image of our head of what, what Tudor means and how it looks and how it feels. And it was definitely 
a new era. But perhaps Henry is not so well remembered and not talked about so much because he wasn't an unstable, violent psychopath. He brought law and order and stability to the country rather than tipping it into chaos like so many of our other early kings. He died without being involved in any scandals. He seemed to have fathered only one illegitimate child, a son, and that was when Henry was a 17-year-old exile in Brittany. And he seemed to genuinely love his wife and children. His grief when he was predeceased by his eldest child and not long after that his wife Queen Elizabeth died after childbirth. His, his grief was well recorded, um, you know, that he was for a long time distraught. So should we dismiss him simply because he was a bit dull and the country didn't fall apart while he was on the throne? Or should we applaud him for being a bit dull? I mean, he was on so many levels a very good king uh, in as much as he settled things down and straightened things out. And he was certainly what England needed at this time after the turmoil and disruption of that civil war. It occasionally felt like hacking through a tangled thicket of brambles, trying to make sense of the Wars of the Roses, from Henry VI to Margaret of Anjou, Richard of York, Edward IV, the Princes in the Tower, Richard III, not to mention what was going on across the Channel in France. And I hope you enjoyed all that, and I hope you've got a better understanding of it all. I, I think I have. But now we come to the Tudors, and things really get a lot easier from here. Because so many of us and so many of our children have done the Tudors at school. And there have been so many films, books, TV series, documentaries about them, that we kind of know where we are with the Tudors. And then on through the Stuarts. I think we perhaps hit another complicated and less well-known phase through James II, William and Mary and Queen Anne. But but once we hit the Hanoverians with George I onwards, it's all going to be plain sailing again. Monarchs from then just tended to sit on the throne and not do very much. Eventually they die and are replaced in an orderly fashion by the next in line to the throne. Apart, of course, from the little upset with Edward VIII in the 1930s. But as I say, Henry VII, the man who started it all, is not a very well-known king. So well, let's start with the basic facts. Um, he was born in 1457 and he died in 1509 when he was 52 years old. So not a bad span. And he was king from... 1485 until his death in 1509. Uh, so he reigned for nearly 24 years and was peacefully succeeded by his son, Henry VIII. Now, he was descended from the Tudors of Penminith in Wales. And apologies if I've mispronounced it. And if you want to sort of catch up on more of that history of the early Tudors through to Henry VII, then um, have a listen to my special episode that I recorded with Tracy Borman, uh, where we looked at the story of the Tudors leading up to this period. So Henry was half Welsh on the Tudor side, but very English through the female line and on his mother's side. And the Tudors first really make their mark on English history when Henry's grandfather, Owen Tudor, who was basically a royal servant, 
had an affair with, and then scandalously married Catherine of Valois, and Catherine being the daughter of the mad King Charles of France and the widow of Henry V. And she and Henry had had one son before King Henry V died of dysentery, and that son was poor old mad Henry VI. There is some speculation that Henry VI inherited his madness from his grandfather, mad King Charles of France, through his mother, Catherine. But I don't know. I mean, nobody else in the family seemed to have gone bonkers. Uh, Certainly not anyone on the Tudor side and certainly not Henry Tudor. So, as I say, Catherine, Henry V's widow, remarries this guy, Owen Tudor, and they have two sons, Edmund and Jasper, who were therefore half-brothers of King Henry VI. And Edmund Tudor married a woman called Lady Margaret Beaufort. And this is another instance of these complicated marriages where different branches of the same family get entangled. The Beauforts are the branch that I've been calling the illegitimate branch, or at least the legitimised branch, descending from King Edward III's son, John of Gaunt, via his second wife, Catherine Swineford. And uh, John of Gaunt is the founder of the House of Lancaster. And that makes him very much Henry VI's great-grandfather. And Edward III, his great-great-grandfather. As I say, Owen Tudor's son Edmund married Lady Margaret Beaufort. And for reasons that I will get onto in a moment, they only had one son, Henry VII. So at least that bit is quite simple. Now, Lady Margaret Beaufort was a really formidable woman, one of those tough, powerful medieval matriarchs. We've seen time and time again how these clever, strong women weren't allowed to take power in their own right, so they worked really hard to ensure that their sons ended up in key positions, often sitting on the throne. I talked about Lady Margaret Beaufort with Tracy Borman in the previous episode about the Tudors, so I won't repeat it all here. But she had an extraordinary life. And if you haven't listened to that episode, then you should go back because she was an amazing woman. She was only 12 when she married Edmund Tudor, but she'd already been married once before. And when Helen Castor was on last, we talked about this idea of the nobility and royalty marrying very young to make political alliances. But usually the woman, the girl, was not expected to actually consummate the marriage until she was old enough to safely bear children. But in Margaret's case, she did consummate the marriage with Edmund while still a child and gave birth to Henry Tudor when she was only 13. So she was very close to him in age. And it looks very likely that having a child at so young an age did permanent physical damage to Margaret. And despite marrying twice more after Edmund Tudor, she never had another child, which did leave her free to devote all her energies to this one son, Henry. And years later... She even wrote a a set of proper instructions for the delivery of potential heirs, no doubt stemming from her own experiences. As it turned out, her marriage to Edmund Tudor didn't last long. He died before his son Henry was born. 
Edmund Tudor and his brother Jasper weren't really major players, despite marrying into the royal family. And they sort of kept their options open through this whole tricky back and forth between the Yorkists and the Lancastrians, particularly when King Henry VI lost his faculties and Richard of York was basically running the country. It was really hard to know who you should openly support. And it seems that the two Tudor brothers tried to keep both sides happy. They wanted to lean towards whoever was going to come out on top, but it was always very hard to say who that was going to be. So Edmund tried to keep out of the way in Wales, but then he got caught up in this land dispute with a neighbour and they sort of went to war with each other. And Edmund came out on top, took his neighbour's lands and suddenly found himself in charge of a large part of Wales, which meant that he was now a major player. And Richard of York did not like this. He saw Edmund as a potential threat and sent an army into Wales to arrest him. And Edmund was locked up in Carmarthen Castle in West Wales, where he died not long after of bubonic plague. Edmund never saw his son, Henry, who was born three months after he died of the plague in 1457 at Pembroke Castle. And Edmund's younger brother, Henry's uncle Jasper Tudor, became the protector of the family. So the civil war was raging right through young Henry Tudor's early years. He was born into it as his half-uncle Henry VI was fighting against first Richard of York and then Richard of York's son, who became Edward IV. And when that first happened, when the Yorkists first took the throne and Edward IV first wore the crown in 1461, Uncle Jasper had no choice but to flee into exile abroad, where he could wait things out and see what was going to happen in England. And Pembroke Castle was taken over by the Yorkists, who also took over the guardianship of the family. And the owner of Pembroke Castle was a man who was called William Herbert, who was a staunch Yorkist supporter. He was on Edward IV's side. And Henry Tudor lived in William Herbert's household until 1469. Now, Lord Herbert was hoping he could do well out of all this. Not only was he sucking up to Edward IV by keeping Henry under his watchful eye, he was also thinking, well, it might be good to get his daughter married to Henry, who was, after all, a member of the royal family. So it would be a big step up in the world for the Herberts of Pembroke. It all went wrong for Herbert, though, because after only about a year on the throne, Edward IV was deposed when Warwick the Kingmaker switched sides to the Lancastrians and brought Henry back. At this point, Herbert was captured, fighting for the Yorkists, and he was executed by Warwick. So at this point, with Henry VI back on the throne in 1470, Jasper Tudor returned from exile and brought Henry to Westminster. It seemed like things were settled down again, they were on the right side, and they could resume their life in the royal court. But only the following year, Edward IV came back, regained the throne, killed King Henry VI, and Henry Tudor now had to flee the country, as did his uncle Jasper once more. Now, one of the main reasons Henry Tudor needed to keep out of the way was that so many members of the royal family had been killed in battle or executed 
it meant that now Henry Tudor, despite being a relatively obscure member of the family, was a potential heir to the throne. He was very close in the line of succession. So there was no way he was safe in England. And he crossed the Channel to France, where he spent 14 years in exile in Brittany, in northwest France, under the protection of Francis, the second Duke of Brittany. Although his time there was probably closer to a kind of house arrest, the Bretons didn't want to do anything to anger Edward, because as King of England, he might be a useful ally. Because things hadn't changed in France since William the Conqueror's day. The various duchies and principalities, or whatever you want to call them, were all still jostling for power and position, often going to war with the French king. And Brittany was no exception. There was this constant and complex diplomatic dance going on. So Brittany might need King Edward's support if they decided to go up against the French king. And for his part, Edward was also making sure that he was on friendly terms with any potential allies if he decided to take on the French king or even possibly needing extra troops in England. At the same time, Edward also was obviously keeping diplomatic channels open with the actual king of France because you never know how things are going to go and who you want to be friends with. And there was always this jostling for power in France. And the French were all kind of waiting to see who would come out on top in England. You know, if Edward remained firmly in charge there, might he want to rekindle the English claims on French lands? and territories, and possibly even the French crown. Now, the French king at this time was only a child, so there was a kind of ruling council in place, and they too wanted to keep their options open. Edward might be a useful ally for them if there was more trouble, particularly with Burgundy, or indeed with Brittany. And the Bretons also knew that they held a man who had a claim to the English throne. And if recent history was anything to go by, there was a good chance he might become king. There's been a sort of musical thrones going on in England. So they felt it was best to keep their options open and not piss Henry off too much. So he wasn't kept overtly as a captive. He wasn't locked up in a castle anywhere. But as I say, the the Bretons sort of kept a, a beady eye on him and didn't allow him too much personal freedom. However, under mounting pressure from Edward over in England, the Bretons began to treat Henry more and more harshly, eventually separating him from his retinue and his loyal English servants. And then in 1476, Duke Francis of Brittany fell ill and his advisers went behind his back to try to open negotiations with King Edward. Henry was handed over to some English envoys, but just before sailing to England from St. Malo, he pretended to be ill just long enough to delay departure and miss the tide. News then reached them that Francis had recovered, and in the confusion, nobody knowing quite what to do, Henry was able to flee to a monastery where he claimed sanctuary. And back in England, things had changed for his mother, Lady Margaret Beaufort. Not long after the death of Henry's father, Edmund, she remarried, when she was still only 14, to a guy called Henry Stafford. Although essentially 
a marriage based on economics and land ownership and power rather than on love, the marriage does seem to have been happy, though childless. But this was a time of war, and after they'd been married for about 10 years, Stafford died of injuries he received at the Battle of Barnet in 1471, somewhat reluctantly fighting for Edward IV, who at that time was trying to retake his throne. So Lady Margaret married again. She was a good catch, a good prize, being such a sort of key member of the of the royal family. And this was her fourth and last marriage, another political marriage, this time to a staunch Yorkist supporter, Lord Thomas Stanley, both of them wanting to move closer to the king and become part of his inner court. It was useful to King Edward to keep this powerful woman, Lady Margaret, close, but he also wanted to keep Lord Thomas Stanley close. The Stanleys were a very big, powerful family, and if he had full support of the Stanleys, then he was in a much more uh, secure position. And so Lady Margaret's plan worked, and she was able to influence King Edward, so that his attitude towards Henry Tudor mellowed. And by 1482, arrangements were being put in place for Henry to return to England. But then the world turned upside down again. The wheel of fate turned and Edward IV died young. His brother, Richard of Gloucester, quickly made his move. He declared Edward's children illegitimate and took the throne for himself, crowning himself King Richard III. On one level, this was a problem for Lady Margaret and young Henry Tudor because she'd been working on King Edward. But on another level, this created a huge opportunity for her because she could now claim that after Richard, her son Henry was the next legitimate heir to the throne, being a direct descendant of both John of Gaunt and Henry V. And Richard was not a popular king. So she started, in secret, promoting Henry as an alternative to Richard, plotting against him, even though she was married to Lord Stanley, who was a Yorkist. So Henry, still over in France at this time, made an official pledge to marry Elizabeth of York, who was the eldest daughter of Edward IV. So she was the sister to the princes in the tower. And this marriage would unite Henry's Lancastrian branch of the family with Edward's Yorkist branch of the family into a, a real powerhouse union. And once it was clear that Edward V was dead, murdered in the tower with his little brother, Henry Tudor was even closer to the throne and Margaret increased her plotting with various opponents of Richard including King Edward's widow, the ex-queen Elizabeth Woodville, who had been so badly treated by Richard. He'd wiped out half her family, declared her children illegitimate, declared her marriage to King Edward invalid. And so it wasn't long before various forces opposed to Richard started a rebellion that came together under the banner of the Duke of Buckingham and has since been called Buckingham's Rebellion. Lady Margaret was almost certainly involved behind the scenes and was indeed accused of being part of the plot by Richard, who had her basically put under house arrest. 
The rebels, with the support of the Duke of Brittany, tried to get Henry over from France as their figurehead. He attempted a landing on the south coast, but it was swarming with Richard's men and Henry was blown back to France by storms. The rebellion fell apart. Buckingham was caught and executed, and Henry switched his allegiance from the Bretons to the French royal family. The regents who were running the country for the young King Charles VIII shouted down their opponents and sold the idea of supporting Henry against Richard III, who was a ruthless warlike man who could easily pose a problem for France in the future. But if they were able to get Henry on the throne as an ally, it would benefit them hugely. So they gave Henry support in the form of money, ships and men. And a couple of years after his first attempt, he went back to England. This time, he wisely landed in Wales, in Pembrokeshire, where he had a lot of local support, coming as he did from a Welsh family and the Welsh traditionally being the enemies of the Yorkists who had held the Welsh marches against them. And he had also managed to secure the support of the Woodvilles, the family of King Edward IV's widow. So he was able to recruit a large fighting force in Wales and he marched towards England with his uncle Jasper and an army of about 6,000 men. Henry's plan was to attack Richard as quickly as possible before he could get himself organised and call together enough reinforcements for his army. But even so, when the two armies met, Richard's army did outnumber Henry's. So here we have Henry's Lancastrian and Welsh forces lined up against Richard's Yorkist forces at Bosworth Field. Now, if you've listened to the previous episodes, you'll know that the battle tipped into Henry's favour when the two powerful Stanley brothers switched sides. Actually, yeah, you know, it wasn't so much a case of switching sides as sitting on the fence to see which way the wind was blowing. Now, of the two brothers, Thomas Stanley was the husband of Lady Margaret Beaufort, which made him the stepfather of Henry Tudor, who was in charge of one army, and he was supposedly a supporter of King Richard, who was in charge of the other. And Richard had had a bit of a dispute with the other brother, William Stanley, so much so that he had taken William Stanley's son, George, who was known as Lord Strange, he had taken him hostage to make sure that William Stanley behaved and that if he misbehaved, George would be probably beheaded. So the Stanleys held back with their own very significant fighting force. They kept apart and they shadowed the manoeuvres of both armies because they didn't want to commit to one side or the other until they were pretty sure who was going to win. Because so often we've seen through the Wars of the Roses that if you side with the losing side, it is pretty disastrous. And, you know, Richard has only a shaky hold on the throne. So which way are they going to go? And at the decisive moment, just as Richard leads his charge to try and get to Henry and, and kill him himself, the Stanleys make their choice and they join the fight on Henry's side. And so it was that Richard was defeated and killed, the last English king to die on the battlefield. His crown was picked up from where it had fallen in the mud and the blood and placed on Henry's head. 
and he became the last English king to win his throne on the battlefield. And thus, the Tudor dynasty was born. So once Henry was officially crowned king in London, he chose to be lenient. He didn't want to antagonise anybody. The aristocracy had been almost completely shattered and there was danger of the country falling into total anarchy. Henry needed support from both sides, Lancastrians like himself and the Yorkists. And although he passed laws that would have made it easy for him to confiscate lands and powers, he didn't use a heavy hand. He just left that threat in place, hanging there. He rewarded his supporters, and a few of his enemies were executed. Some others were imprisoned or fled into sanctuary, but most were keen to make their peace with the king, at least for the moment, and Henry was keen to make peace with them. And he had to accept their service, especially in the north, where few of his own supporters had any powers because Richard had been a big power in the north of England. So Henry was now ready to officially marry King Edward's daughter, Elizabeth. And Bishop John Morton um, hurried to Rome to get papal dispensation for the union, as they were both descended from the same person, from John of Gaunt. Uh, and there was the problem of uh, consanguinity. And on the 18th of January, 1486, they were married. And this was a great symbolic act. The union of the Yorkist and Lancastrian sides of the Plantagenet family under the new banner of the Tudors. And Henry invented this new badge for the monarchy, which has become the official emblem of England, made up of the White Rose of York and the Red Rose of Lancaster. The Wars of the Roses were now finally over for good. And Henry was accepted in many ways, because Richard had been so unpopular, there was a sort of feeling of anyone but Richard. But Henry knew that he would always be watching his back and would never be secure on the throne. First thing he did was to get Parliament to repeal the titulus regis. Henry was safe to do this because the male heirs had died and he had married the female heir. And it suited him that his wife, Queen Elizabeth, was legitimate. And as I say, he wanted to keep the lords on side, but he couldn't allow them to be too powerful. And he got many of them to sign bonds over to him. They essentially gave him large sums of money in trust that they would lose if they ever turned against him. He also brought in laws that banned the lords from being able to have private armies of uniformed retainers. At the same time, putting together his own inner court within the palace and creating a personal armed bodyguard, who were the ancestors of the present yeomen of the guard, the Beefeaters. And if you wonder why they dress so strangely, it's because they're essentially Tudor outfits. Henry still had to deal with several rebellions, though. And one of the first and the most dangerous came in 1487. Now bear with me, because it does need a little bit of backstory. There was one other surviving person with a good claim to the throne. Now, if you remember, there were three important brothers. There was Edward, who became King Edward IV. There was Richard, who became Richard III. And there was the other brother, Flaky George, the Duke of Clarence, who was always plotting against Edward. And in the end, Edward had him executed, but not before he had a son. And that son was Edward, Earl of Warwick, who is now 10 years old. 
and he is basically the oldest surviving male of the House of York. And just to be sure, Henry kept him at the Tower of London. He wasn't locked up in chains, he had the free run of the place, but he was not allowed out. And so people hadn't seen him for a long while. And in 1487, a guy called Lambert Simnel announced that he was Edward, Earl of Warwick. He was really a puppet set up by a priest called Richard Simmons, who had seen in Lambert Simnel's features a similarity to Edward IV. And he took the boy to Ireland and trained him in royal etiquette. And a dissatisfied member of the de la Pole family, John, Earl of Lincoln, joined the conspiracy and claimed that he had helped Edward, Earl of Warwick, escape from the Tower of London. Richard of York had been a very popular figure in Ireland, a strong man who had impressed the English lords who had their power base in and around Dublin. In fact, it was pretty much the only part of Ireland that they actually held. And these Irish lords seem to have gone along with this plot. They're prepared to believe what was almost certainly fake news because Henry VII was not popular there in Ireland. And de la Pole was hoping he could also count on anti-Tudor support in England. And backed by several thousand Irish troops, Lambert Simnel and his patrons landed in Cumbria. Now you have to remember that the, the hapless Lambert Simnel was the same age as the guy he was impersonating. He was only 10 years old. And his claim was ridiculously easy to disprove. Henry simply brought the real Edward out of the tower and put him on display in London. But Simnel was really just being used and de la Pole's army carried on marching across England. But Henry was the king and had a lot more resources to draw on. He easily raised a large army and set off to confront the rebels. And on the 16th of June 1487, at East Stoke, near Newark in the Midlands, Henry's archers launched a withering hail of arrows against the unarmoured Irish levies. And de la Pole's army was simply destroyed. And de la Pole himself was killed fighting. But Henry showed mercy towards Lambert Simnel himself, as he was so young and couldn't really be blamed for how he'd been used. Henry not only pardoned him, he also decided to employ him and put him to work, first in the royal kitchens as a scullion and later on as a groom of the stool. It's a posh title, but basically he would have to help the king when he went for a shit and clean up after him. Still, that is better than being hung, drawn and quartered, I suppose. Now, there was a very similar rebellion a few years later in 1490, when another pretender to the throne... Perkin Warbeck turned up and he claimed to be Richard, the younger of the two princes in the tower. And he got the support of Edward IV's sister, Margaret, Duchess of Burgundy, who had also backed de la Pole and Lambert Simnel. And like Simnel, Perkin Warbeck managed to get big support in Ireland. But first of all, he went to Scotland, where he managed to persuade the new Scottish king to help him invade England. The old alliance meant that the Scottish and the French were always trying to make mischief against the English. Henry had not long ago uh, brought in a new tax and raised a vast sum of money to invade France in support of his old hosts, the Bretons. But the invasion 
achieved nothing. It fizzled out. Henry came back and this vast sum of money was basically wasted. And perhaps the Scottish king, who was a James inevitably, saw that Henry was weakened and so declaring support for the Yorkists, he crossed the border with Perkin Warbeck's troops. They got about four miles into England before an English army led by one of the Neville family, the historic defenders of the north, chased them back. Warbeck fled to find support elsewhere. And King Henry now decided to sort the Scottish out once and for all and set about raising money with another new tax. And this was to be a blitzkrieg attack on King James. But it never happened. All this heavy taxation had caused a lot of discontent in the kingdom, particularly in Cornwall, down in the southwest, where Henry had also temporarily shut down the tin mining industry. And so there was an uprising, and this was, this was a very ironic chain of events. Henry raises a massive tax to attack the Scots. The Cornish are so angry about the tax that they put an army together and march on London. So Henry now has to use the money that he raised to fight the Scottish to send an army west to deal with the Cornish, who were soundly defeated. So basically this was another huge waste of money. And meanwhile, Warbeck was still plotting. He tried landing in Kent with another army, but was easily sent packing. He then finally managed to raise a bigger army in Ireland and decided to land in Cornwall, hoping that the Cornish would flock to him and have another go at attacking Henry. But the support never materialised. Warbeck was ultimately no more successful than Simnel. He'd overreached and was soon captured and arrested. At this point, William Stanley, Lady Margaret's brother-in-law, the guy who had helped win Bosworth for Henry by switching sides, was found to have a large sum of money hidden in his rooms, and he was accused of receiving it from Perkin Warbeck, who had been trying to buy his support. This may have all been a frame, even a misunderstanding, but he was nevertheless arrested and executed. Henry could not afford to have any potentially dangerous men in the royal household. Now, the king liked Stanley and appreciated all he'd done to help him defeat Richard, but he feared that if he showed too much mercy, it would encourage further conspiracies against him. So Stanley was for the chop. Under torture, Perkin Warbeck admitted to being a Belgian called Pierquin Wesbeck. He was initially pardoned, as he'd confessed to being an imposter, he was no longer a threat to Henry, and he was made reasonably welcome in the royal court, although he was kept under guard. And when he tried to escape, he was locked up in the tower with young Edward, Earl of Warwick. And when there was another plot, an attempt by both Warbeck and Edward to escape together, Henry finally and reluctantly had them both executed. So having dealt with these threats, Henry settled down, trying to restore stability and security to the land, and he instigated a punitive tax regime. Initially, this had been to finance his various military operations, but the heavy taxation was stepped up in order to improve the country's finances. He was inevitably accused of greed. He did spend a lot on his wardrobe and royal palaces, but most of this tax money made its way into the Exchequer, under his Chancellor, 
Archbishop John Morton. And Morton famously had a catch-22 approach to squeezing taxes out of the nobility, known as Morton's Fork. The idea of a pitchfork with its two prongs, and if you avoid one prong, you'll get stuck by the other one. So anyone who had spent very little must therefore have hoarded big savings and thus could be heavily taxed. But anyone who had spent lavishly must have loads of money and so could be heavily taxed. Now, as I say, Henry didn't spend all of this money on himself. He built or restored several royal palaces, churches and and chapels, such as the one at King's College, Cambridge. He strengthened the navy, building new ships and making it a proper fighting force. I mean, he essentially just wanted peace and economic prosperity and was largely successful. After his half-hearted invasion attempt in France, he made peace with the French and they signed a treaty. Maybe this had been Henry's intention all along. He also made a peace treaty with Scotland and betrothed his daughter, Margaret, to King James IV of Scotland, hoping to break the old alliance between Scotland and France. He didn't quite pull that off, but England and Scotland were eventually to be united when Margaret's great-great-grandson, James VI, of Scotland became James I of England, which we will obviously deal with in a later episode. So he'd made peace with France and Scotland. Now he wanted to make an alliance with Spain and he married his eldest son, Arthur, Prince of Wales, to Catherine of Aragon. And there was this huge party, this huge festival when they this huge festival when they married with tournaments and shows and pageants and this was probably a high point for Henry in his reign because towards the end Henry was rocked by the deaths of many of his leading councillors and supporters including his father-in-law Thomas Stanley but what hit him even harder was deaths in his own family first to go was his beloved eldest son Arthur who had he lived would have been our first official King Arthur But he died from a respiratory illness known as the English sweating sickness, a mysterious, still unidentified illness that did for many people at this time. And this meant that Henry's second son, also called Henry, became the heir to the throne. And this is the future Henry VIII. As I said before, Henry was really upset by all this. And his intense grief and sobbing at his son's death was noted by his courtiers. And in the following year, his wife, Queen Elizabeth, gave birth to a daughter, Catherine. But the little girl only lived a few days, and Elizabeth herself died soon after. So this was a terrible blow to Henry. He had genuinely been in love with Queen Elizabeth. He wasn't known for having mistresses and siring illegitimate children all over the place. And so when she died, he was shattered But he still needed to preserve the Spanish alliance and he got the Pope to agree that his son Henry could marry Arthur's widow, Catherine. Henry never really recovered from this double shock. And six years later, still grieving, he died of tuberculosis in 1509. He was buried in Westminster Abbey and there is a bust there based on his death mask. There is also a very famous portrait of Henry VII, which is in the National Portrait Gallery, which is well worth visiting. 
And I think it can be safely said that this this bust and this painting are probably the first truly photographically accurate portraits of one of our monarchs. And so I think, it, you know, I think you safely can look at the bust and look at the face and deduce quite a lot the, about the man. He looks intelligent, inquisitive, dignified, very much the Renaissance man. And in fact, um, his executors commissioned an Italian, Pietro Torrigiano, um, who had probably been the guy who made the effigy for the king's funeral. Uh, they, they commissioned him to, to build a tomb for Henry, um, which is full of all these Italianate details of saints and angels and elaborate carvings. And it is one of the first great monuments of Renaissance art in England. You can see a real change from the slightly more primitive medieval art and architecture to this new blossoming that we get with the Renaissance. And, you know, I think it's fitting for Henry, who, who I think is probably one of our better kings, and did try to make England more civilised. And then his son Henry VIII comes to the throne. It'd be hard to say that Henry made England more civilised. He was I, he was probably a bit of a psychopath. But we will get into all of that in the next episode. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. So my guest today to talk about Henry VII in more detail is Nathan Amin, who is, and I'm going to read this from Google Books, uh, this is your bio on Google Books. I hope it's accurate, Nathan. An author from Carmarthenshire in West Wales, which is appropriate, obviously, because Henry being our first Welsh king, as it were, who focuses on the 15th century and the reign of Henry VII. The perfect man to have on. He is the author of Tudor Wales, The House of Beaufort, and Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders, Simnel, Warbeck and Warwick. And it says in Google Books, Nathan, that your most recent work is the son of prophecy. And then it says it's out in 2024. So <laughs> there's a bit of time traveling going on there. I'm quite impressed that the Google Books have got that there. Shows that they are the, <laughs> you know, the fount of all knowledge. Um, no, yeah, the, the, the son of prophecy, the rise of Henry Tudor, to give its full title. Um, it's going to be looking at 300 years of what we would now call the Tudor family's origins, uh, tracking it from the 12th century, uh, their rise to power 
in North Wales, uh, and ultimately how the Tudors, as we know the family today, uh, migrated to England, really, and started their almost improbable rise to the crown. I mean, within within eight years, they have gone from Welsh rebels to English royalty. And I think it's an incredible story and possibly unrivaled uh, anywhere in British royal history. Um, obviously, I hope it, be- it becomes the book that I will be known for. So <laughs> we'll see. Well, I guess you would say all that about the Tudors being Welsh. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, it's very hard to hide any bias here. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of information about the Tudors of exactly where they started. And correct me if I'm wrong, that there's it, it's slightly confusing because Tudor is initially a, a Christian name, as it were, a first name, and then it becomes a surname. So at what point they are officially Tudors? Yeah, exactly. I mean, in which we operated the patronymic system, uh, so exactly right, Tudor would have been a Christian name. Uh, one of the chaps in call, in fact, of Henry's ancestors was uh, someone called Tidir Ap Garonwe, um, Tudor, son of Garonwe, uh, and the name was clearly passed down in the in the family lineage. Now, by the time we get to the first Tudor, if you want to call him that, who migrated to England, this was a chap called Owain Ap Meredith Ap Tidir, or Owen, the son of Meredith, son of Tudor. Uh, he was forced to leave Wales uh, in the early 15th century because of the uh, uprising, the rebellion, uh, the War of Independence, depending on which term you want to use, of his cousin, Owen Glyndwr. Um, Wales was destroyed as a consequence of this war. And, you know, young Owen essentially became an, an economic migrant, if you will, hmm. to England to try and restart his, uh, you know, st- restart his life. Now, while there, it does seem that the English clerks at court did struggle with the concept of this Owain ap Meredith ap Tidir. I find that very surprising. It gets very contracted to just become uh, Owen Tudor eventually. Yeah. Now, at times, he still is referred to as Owen Meredith, which right, perhaps would right. have been far more accurate. I mean, fast forward in 100 years uh, and onwards, uh, when the Welsh patronymic system starts to decline, after Wales is united with England by the mm. Acts of Union, all of the famous Welsh names we now have, like Jones, uh, Pritchard, Powell, these are all contractions of this patronymic system. So anyone who is with a surname Pritchard, their ancestor at one point in time would have perhaps been called um, John Ap Richard, John son ah, of Richard, right, okay. or John Ap Powell, which becomes Powell. Uh, Jones would have been son of John uh, and so on. So yeah, so Owen really should have been Owen Meredith, and we should have had the Meredith dynasty. Um, so it is a bit of a backward back, back way of how we get to the Tudor name. You know, they themselves did not consider themselves the Tudors. I have to say, it, it, it is fantastic having someone on who can give the correct Welsh pronunciations, and it's and it's great to hear them because I've been mangling this. And I'm, I've been expecting a lot of uh, Welsh listeners to be uh, getting in touch with me with angry comments. So uh, thank you so much for that. I'm I, not going to try and uh, and copy it. So I notice you're pronouncing it Tudor. Uh, we English pronounce it Tudor. But the proper pronunciation you're saying is, is Tidir? Tidir. Tidir. Um, tidir. Uh, and this is quite interesting because in the run up to the Battle of Bosworth, um, Richard III is trying to 
he's trying to criticise. He's doing propaganda against Henry mm. uh, Henry Tudor. He's trying to, you know, uh, point to his supposed lowly Welsh background. And he repeatedly refers to him as Henry Tudor, uh, not Henry <laughs> Tudor. And that's quite interesting. It shows that Richard was actually using the correct Welsh pronunciation. <laughs> I mean, did he think it sounded more demeaning somehow? To call him I mean, that? yeah, obviously his overall point was to try and demean this, yeah. this supposed... Uh, opponent of his who is trying to come and claim his crown. How dare this low Welshman, this Tidder, have any any um, hopes or ambitions for the English crown? And that went well for Richard. Well, exactly. I mean, unfortunately for Richard, he was the one who ended up slung over the back of a horse, not Henry. <laughs> it also says in your Google Books bio that you are a trustee and founding member of the Henry Tudor Trust. What is a Henry Tudor Trust? So many years ago, I was trying to campaign for a statue of Henry VII in his birthplace of Pembroke. Uh, my campaign ultimately uh, floundered, and it was taken up by a group of local enthusiasts in Pembroke, but who were successful in uh, getting that statue. Now, once the statue was uh, unveiled in Pembroke, you know, ambitions grow, and there was the opportunity to hopefully one day open a a museum dedicated to Henry in Pembroke, the Henry Tudor Centre, championing West Wales's most famous son, if you uh, don't count any rugby players. <laughs> and, 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 I mean, did you set it up as sort of in opposition to the Richard III Society? <laughs> are, are you at war with each other? Oh, well, I, I don't feel I'm at war. I feel like many people are at war with me uh, many <laughs> of the times. Um, uh, feelings can run very high in this so-called battle between Ricardians and those who uh, support them like Henry Henry Seventh. I mean, I've taken a lot of punishment in my time on social media and in person, <laughs> shall we say, just for daring to like uh, a prince from my own uh, my own backyard. This is about championing and supporting Henry Tudor's own accomplishments, his own yeah. life, his own background. It doesn't need to be. Uh, us versus their mentality, which sadly sometimes. Uh, well, that does. It, I mean, that is a way of of getting into this and talking about it, and you know, getting publicity for it, and I suppose media attention is people always like an argument and a spat, and and as you say, I mean, in the end. Um, well, I think you've been doing some events with with Matt Lewis, who we had on in the last episode, talking about Richard the Third. Yeah, so Matt Lewis is someone I I met probably over ten years ago now. Um, now, me and Matt, we joke that if you give us one piece of paper, uh, one document from this time uh, with five lines in it, we will emerge from that one document with two completely different views on <laughs> what happened. You know, uh, And we do. You know, there, There's quite a, a bit about this subject that we do fundamentally disagree on. But the key thing, of course, you know, we are very good friends, uh, despite all of the historical uh, disagreements we may have and will still have for many years to come, I hope. Well, <laughs> if the study of history is not bringing some joy to you, um, you, you know, and, and really being something positive in your life, then yeah. what, what's the point? I mean, it's great that you are championing Henry the Seventh and working on this centre in Pembroke. But he's certainly the least well-known of the Tudors in the dynasty. And yet, you know, without him, there is no dynasty. I would argue that certainly in England, he's not a major figure. You know, how is he thought of in Wales is he someone that people know a lot about Tudors or is your mission if you like to kind of awaken people to that I, I think that this is going to be quite a bit of a generalization but I feel first and foremost the reason he's gone under the radar in uh, England 
is because there was no Shakespeare play about him. <laughs> uh, we do have, you know, Henry VIII, Richard III, and so on. There's also an element, I believe, of uh, in English circles, historically, uh, academic circles, you know, perhaps go back to Victorians, where they sought to diminish his Welshness. Right, now, yes. I read, I read and understand Henry VII to be far more uh, a Welshman, proud of his Welsh roots, than history has given him the credit for. Um, and that's just by simply going back and doing the research. But obviously, in English circles, this Welshness has been long denied to him, and that has had um, a drop-down consequence. But, I in- mean, did the Tudors themselves try to underplay that a bit, to say, look, we are legitimate rulers of England, you know, I am more English than Welsh? Absolutely from Henry VIII onwards. Right. You know, Henry VIII had no real strong feelings for anything other than his own greatness. <laughs> uh, he certainly, He certainly wasn't like... What we'd call today, you get many Welshmen living in England are big supporters of the Welsh rugby team. You know, that <laughs> certainly wasn't the case with Henry VIII. Henry VII definitely was uh, a champion of his own Welshness. There is untold references to him and his uh, strong association with Wales. I mean, this is a man who used a big red dragon as his principal mm. royal badge. Uh, he consistently was making payments throughout his life once he became king, uh, to get Welsh rhymers, Welsh harpists, Welsh mead brought to right. him. He was born and bred in Wales till he was 14 years old. Um, and he really made a big play of his Welsh slash British heritage mm. when he became king of England because it was a way to show up his credibility. So Henry VII definitely was strong on the Welsh aspect. Henry VIII onwards, no, they, 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 they couldn't have cared less about that. And obviously that then does have a knock-on effect. Now, in Wales, over the years, it is quite complex. You know, there is a complex political and ideological struggle going on over over the years over what it means to be Welsh. Can you be Welsh if you don't speak Welsh and so on? The reputation of the Tudors has been marred somewhat by the Act of Union in 1536. Modern Welsh nationalists view that act as being the reason that Wales has fallen behind uh, the rest of Britain. They view it as... Uh, you know, the reason that we have been conquered, we are a colony so, of England so and so that, on. So that's, that's the moment where Henry VIII officially says Wales is essentially part of England now. He, yeah, he, he annexes Wales fully into the political machine of England, mm. which it remains, well, certainly up to 1999 when we got the, the Welsh government, yeah. you know, it, it, the devolution has started to try and undo some of the work. But yeah, I mean, England was merged in and this means that there's two to family are viewed in Wales by some people as being uh, what we call Bradwyr, which is traitors. They are the, the family, the traitor family, who uh, shunned their Welshness and foisted upon us this terrible you know, lineage and so on that we have today. Mm. I mean, the huge implication of all of this is that Henry Tudor seems to have been ignored quite a lot in England as the boring Tudor, the Tudor <laughs> of no consequence. He's been ignored in Wales outside Welsh language circles, um, as just a, a mere traitor who exploited his Welshness for his own benefit. Mm. Um, and all of a sudden, here I am, popping up and hopefully trying to <laughs> uh, revive some of this reputation, which I think is actually working. I mean, at the moment, he's possibly one of the most popular Tudors to to study, particularly because he's now on the A-level curriculum. Oh, is he? Uh, pe- okay. Yeah, so, I mean, I've, I've, I've certainly developed a significant fan base <laughs> amongst A-level students, which is quite interesting because, uh, you know, if, if these um, youngsters hold on to a lifelong interest in a subject they studied at school, 
I've got many years of book sales ahead of me. Yeah. <laughs> so our understanding of history is being expanded one moniker at a time. <laughs> <laughs> now, talking about Henry Tudor and controversy, we can't avoid looking at the disappearance of the princes in the tower. And the Ricardians would have us believe that it was Henry VII who did away with them. But I'm sure that you're on the other side and would say that the traditional view that Richard did away with them seems much more likely. I mean, the, the Princes of the Tower is obviously a fantastic uh, mystery. Uh, quite recently, there was a poll done where it was voted British history's greatest mystery. It has all the classic ingredients, uh, shadowy conspiracies, royal involvement, innocent victims, sudden results. And the key thing here is that it almost certainly always will be unresolved mm -hmm. um i can never say i definitely know who did it or who did what but my reading of all of the history and everything i've looked over leads me to believe that the culprit in murdering the prince of the tower is richard iii if henry the seventh becomes king in 1485 and he goes to the tower of london and he opens to the door and there's two boys there the first thing he has to do i'm sad to say it is murder those little boys because they stand in the way of him being king. He's about to declare uh, their sister legitimate so that he can marry her, but that would also have the knock-on cause of making the boys legitimate, and therefore they are back in his way. He has to kill them. However, we've got to believe that those boys have survived the previous two years mm -hmm. to get to this point. Uh, we've had no sightings of them for 18 months previous to this. I just don't believe they would have survived. Richard III had to eliminate the threat to his future prosperity, the future stability of England, by getting rid of those boys. Now, we're often asked, why didn't Richard produce any bodies of these um, princes? Surely he would have just produced them. Or even Henry Tudor, when he became king, why didn't he produce the bodies of the boys so that we can definitively put this case to bed? My belief, uh, again, keywords, my belief, is that uh, this is because if we read a Welsh chronicle written 50 years later, which no one has because it's in Welsh, which obviously uh, <laughs> limit, limits a lot of the accessibility to it, it's uh, a famous Tudor chronicler called Ellis Griffiths. And Ellis Griffiths writes that the boys were one day put into an iron chest. They were taken on a ship where nobody on that ship knew what the chest contained and they were dropped into a part of the Thames estuary known as the Black Deep. And I believe that the boys were simply put into the water because ultimately, if you are going to kill somebody and you're going to kill two royal princes, you're not going to bury them at the foot of a stairwell in concrete in the Tower of London, which is mm. obviously what the, the general uh, reading of history has been. You need to get rid of those boys and make sure they never return. And I believe what's happened is Richard's had them killed, had them thrown in the sea, and therefore, he can't produce them. He can't tell everyone what's happened because the boys are gone. Um, well, you need to, to, to do the sort of Henry version of the digging up the car park in, in Leicester and yeah. put an expedition together to, to, to find this metal box. But, I mean, the other thing that sort of swings in Henry's favour is that the anti-Richard brigade started out supporting the princes in the tower and then they said, no, forget them, we're now going to support... Henry, yeah, and you kind of think, well, they wouldn't have done that unless they knew that the princes were dead. Now, 
it does seem that an attack was launched on the Tower of London to try and free the boys, and it fails. After the summer of 1483, the boys disappear. I believe Richard's killed them because he's realised he needs to get rid of them or these attacks are going to keep on coming. And yeah, then, they yeah. will always be. And then, as you say, the rebels have now decided, well, the boys have gone. What's our next best bet? Oh, it's yeah. Henry Tudor, right man, right age, right place at the moment because he's outside England, uh, unmarried, let's create a new plot behind him. And they would have probably believed they were going to get a very pliant puppet on the throne. I mean, who the hell was Henry Tudor? Uh, this random Welsh exile, uh, you know, he had never so much as, as run a bungalow, let alone run a, a kingdom. So they clearly thought they were going to get a nobody come in, and they didn't realise they were going to get one of the most strong-minded kings who's ever governed this country, a man who would do it his way um, and his way only, a man who had had no power his entire life, and once he became king, he was not given a power to anybody else. No, I mean, and, you know, it is a fantastic story. And you do think, well, why has he been dismissed as this uninteresting Tudor? He actually did a lot more than Henry VIII in terms of... Well, I mean, apart obviously the big one in Henry VIII thing is the Reformation. But, I mean, outside that, he, he didn't really do anything. Well, I, I always say with uh, Henry the Seventh, you know, when we're, when we're discussing his life, just the, just him getting to the throne should be yeah. to be uh, a 16-part TV series alone. Um, and I always say, you know, when you look at Henry VII's life, who needs six wives or a Spanish armada? I mean, this <laughs> life has all the drama, intrigue, plot in you could possibly have. Now, mm. one thing that always goes against Henry VII is that we're always told he was a paranoid king, a suspicious king. This man had been taken from his family at four years old. He had been raised by the enemies of his family for the next ten years. He was put in the family of the Herberts at Raglan in Monmouthshire. Yeah. They were the dynastic rivals of his background, so he was raised by the enemies of his family. Then at 14, the Yorkists tried to kill him. He had to flee through underground tunnels in Tembe to get into a small boat and then escape over to Brittany, where for the next 12 years, he had to escape and evade repeated assassination attempts. Edward IV repeatedly tried to get his hands on Henry Tudor, because Edward IV back in England had wiped out all of the Lancastrian threats. There was yeah. just one person left, and that was Henry Tudor. And Edward and Richard are actually sending actual assassins over. Well, we, I guess we would call them diplomats, uh, you, know, <laughs> I, you know, but not, not exactly uh, you know, Assassin's Creed-type killers, but you know, <laughs> diplomats and envoys going over repeatedly to try and get hold of Henry. Yeah. Once Henry comes back to England, he would have been executed. Fast forward to the reign of Richard III, Similar thing. Richard III is now suddenly shipping over men, promises of money, gold, all to try and get his hands on Henry Tudor. So one night, Henry says, I'm just going to go visit a friend. The Breton soldiers, they say, fine. And he rides for a couple of miles on his horse. He gets off his horse and he puts on the disguise of a servant. He gets back on his horse and he just starts riding for hours as fast as he can towards the French border. Now, the Bretons realise, uh-oh, he's gone. We're going to lose all this English gold. They chase after him. <laughs> we are told that Henry crossed the border from Brittany into France with only one hour to spare. Once again, if he'd been caught, he would have been executed. And this is the mm. third flight for his life that he successfully makes before the age of 28. Once he's in France, the French go, oh, of course this guy's the rightful king of England. Here's money, here's men. Go and, uh, go and bump off that evil Richard 
over in England. So it's fascinating for me that by the time Henry becomes king, he already is suspicious. He already is paranoid because people have been trying to kill him his whole life. Once he becomes king, life isn't what Shakespeare would have us believe, that he had made everything hunky-dory and England was finally at peace. He reigned for 24 years, and it was a 24-year reign that faced repeated conspiracies, plots, rebellions, and betrayals within his own household that he had to contend with. This is a man who, from birth until the time he died at 52 years old, he never slept easily. You know, he had a tough life of wondering when that knife was coming. Um, and, of mm. course, he had, see- he had <clears throat> seen what had happened to the princes of the tower. He didn't want the, you know, what he may have believed happened to the princes of the tower. He certainly didn't want that to happen for his own children. And he'd also seen what, I mean, what he had inflicted on Richard III. He also knew what happens to kings <clears throat> if they get knocked off. They end up under car parks. <laughs> so, I um, mean, it, it's a case of you're not paranoid. They really are out to get you. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that he was one of our good kings. Yeah, it's really weird because you know, he, he's often viewed as a dour, uh, miserly king, devoid of any warmth, our Ebenezer Scrooge king, if you will. And it's a completely unfair assessment. Well, he certainly collected a lot of money, but I mean, he did spend a lot of it. He lavished jewels and furs on his wife. He's regularly on record as buying gifts for his children. This man spent so much of his money on enjoying the finer things in life. And of mm. course, he was penniless till he was 28. But, you know, with regards to his personal character, I don't know where this idea that he was dour comes from. There are so many records from foreign ambassadors, from um, court biographers, from his own records that he was affable, he was gracious, uh, widely regarded as quick-witted. And I feel that he deserves perhaps far more respect that he's getting. And I think he probably in time will get it because based on the conversations I'm having with people such as yourself, um, with, you know, numerous A-level students, the amount of work that's been put out there, um, as long as we could try and bat off some of the worst excesses of uh, historical fiction, I think I, th- I, I, I think the <laughs> reputation of Henry Tudor is, um, is starting to come through well. And you've got to deal with the, the Ricardians. I mean, after the Edward V episode went out and we posted a little clip of David Mitchell talking about how he was convinced Richard was to blame. He had quite a lot of people on Twitter having a go at David. How dare you? I used to really like you, but now you've upset me about Richard III. And I have to say, they were all women. Well, uh, I have been in the wars for over 10 years with this and I have some stories I could tell you about what I've had to put up with. I've had a, I've had a, I've had a, I've had a woman spit at me once. Uh, for minding a Henry Tudor stall, I've had a woman rip, rip down the Welsh flag. <laughs> I've had women hold up their fingers uh, in a cross shape to me as if I was the devil himself for daring to like Henry Tudor. <laughs> I have had thousands of social media comments in my time that are very aggressive, very petty, very nonsensical. All majority women who are seeking to unmalign and defend their man and often the target of their vitriol is another woman, Margaret Beaufort, who is the mother of Henry Tudor. And I find it astonishing that we have modern-day women who are seeking to completely destroy the reputation of one of Britain's greatest female people. Oh, I mean, her story is absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? 
she is an astonishing figure who did so much good for this country once she had the full power given to her once this became king. I mean, you know, we owe some incredible buildings and legacies and colleges to her. She was a patron of, of the arts, of culture, of learning, you know, uh, very much a woman at a man's time who was able to really leave her mark on the world. And, you know, of course, there is no suggestion whatsoever during her time that she was anything near this malevolent figure. Who knew that something that happened 500 years ago is still a raging shitstorm on Twitter? A lot of historians will completely evade this subject. They cannot take the hostility aimed at them. Now, again, I have been deep in this world for 12 years and I used to be a rugby front rower. I, 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 <laughs> I, I, can, take, I can take this punishment on my wide shoulders. <laughs> That's been fantastic and and really fun and interesting to talk to you, Nathan. And it's great to have such a a staunch supporter of Henry, who I didn't know a lot about going into this, and I've been really impressed by him. And I think he did a fantastic job. And, you know, it always amuses me how anybody who raises taxes is, is always painted as a terrible villain. And you have to say, do you not understand that without taxes, you can't pay for anything. <laughs> and of course, the, the very key thing to remember about this is that Henry's done all of this to simply stabilise the country. And the only way that he can oh. emerge victorious from a, a dynastic conflict is not to hack it off people's heads, which is what previous kings have done, is to simply make himself supreme by accumulating so much cash that no one can outspend him. And as I always say, mm. I would much rather lose my coin than lose my head which is what happens under kings before and after Henry VII. Yes. And then we will see in the next episode how Henry VIII basically just squanders everything. And his first act on taking the throne is to kill the two main tax collectors. And he never really recovered from that. Do you know what Henry VIII is? He's the the typical uh, spoiled brat. Uh, He's the spoiled brat who inherited everything and could not live up to his father's... uh, self-made legacy and he's got to yeah. squander yeah. the whole inheritance on his personal <laughs> fancies brilliant thank you very much again nathan and good luck with the ricardians <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> that was nathan armin author of several books on the tudors mainly coming from a welsh perspective including henry the seventh and the tudor pretenders simnel warbeck and warwick and he's also written a book on the house of beaufort And his new book on Henry VII is out in 2024. Now, in our next episode, we'll be looking at one king in this series I can guarantee that everybody will have a picture of and an opinion about. Henry VIII. I'm going to split Henry into two episodes, though. One looking at him in the wider context of what was going on in Europe at the time, which is often ignored in the juicy personal dramas, And a second one, all about the juicy personal dramas, the story of his six wives. So be sure to come back, like and subscribe and recommend and anything else. And, well, thank you for listening. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game, and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.